Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is an interview with Adrian Alfieri. Adrian is the founder and CEO of the B2B content studio for Batum, which he launched to help software companies basically build out their content function. He's worked with clients like OpenStore, Polywork, Settle, Taito, Black Crow, Parker, Disco, and the list goes on and on. Before that, he was in venture. He also was an associate at Assembled Brands. And before, he was an analyst at Babel Ventures. He has also angel invested in a ton of companies like Levels, Othership, Taito, Bounty, and other companies that are either consumer brands or commerce enablement in that general direct-to-consumer landscape. And one of the things that he's been doing for a few years that I was really excited to talk to him about is The Proof. He's the founder of a newsletter called The Proof, where he interviews guests about their wellness routines and habits. He's talked to everyone from the founders of Mad Happy and Sweet Green and Hymns and Athletic Greens to Tim Draper to Mark Cuban. And so a lot of this conversation focuses not only on B2B content strategies, which there's a lot of good tactical stuff in there, but also his own journey becoming a content creator and how much opportunity that has unlocked for him. So this is great for all you content nerds out there. Adrian's audio gets a little bit kind of on the quieter side sometimes, but hopefully you'll be able to hear all the gems. So without further ado, here is the conversation with Adrian Alfieri. We are here today with Adrian Alfieri. Adrian is the founder of Verbatim, which helps companies build their editorial engines and grow through organic content. And he has been on the venture side. He has been at Assembled Brands, Molita's, He's deep in the world of content and consumer. And so naturally, I wanted to talk to him. Plus, he went to Brown and I have a soft spot in my heart for everybody who went to Brown. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm excited to be here. Let's take it back to 2018, which is when I believe you graduated. What did you think you were going to do? Did you have a plan? I thought I was going to do Teach for America. I signed up for the program junior year. Both my parents are teachers and my grandparents are teachers and my sister's a teacher. I was hyped about it. I'd always loved working with kids, volunteered when I was younger. And senior year, I remember going through the whole process. We were signing up for our partner schools. And the starting salary, I think, was like 28 grand. And I was like, I did not know it. I did not know this was the standard. Let me take a look at what else is in the market. That was the honest reaction. It was just like, I don't know if this is a feasible path to kind of the life I want to live or like the lifestyle I want to have. And so... I actually graduated from college with no job. I had rejected Teach for America. I had rejected Venture for America. And senior year, I was writing a thesis about early stage investing. I was not part of any entrepreneurship clubs. I was not part of the investing club. I was obsessed with this like sub-vertical called alternative protein. And they were all backed by venture capitalists. And I was like, I don't know what these are, but they have a lot of money. It seems cool. And they're getting these companies off the ground. And at the time, all these alternative protein companies were just like mad scientists in San Francisco. And so I was like, whatever this venture capital thing is, sounds cool. And so I graduated with no job. And this guy I had been DMing on LinkedIn, Ryan, or I asked him for a job. I said, let me move out to San Francisco. I don't have a job, but I just graduated. I will buy a one-way ticket and I will sleep on couches and I will do the whole startup thing. Just let me come work for your venture fund. He had a small fund. I think he was the operating partner there mostly church deal with a small $26 million fund called Babel Ventures. Two GPs, Ryan, another woman named Bob and Uzi. It's an absolute powerhouse. Yeah, I just asked him on LinkedIn if I could take a one-way ticket and fly out. So I did three days after graduation. He said, screw it, come out. 
You can be an intern, you can be an analyst, whatever you want to do. And I showed up. I didn't know what venture capital was. I had no startup internships. I had no demonstrated interest in startups. But I don't know. I just went for it. So that was the backstory. When you say alternative proteins, you mean like perfect day, just that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I was really interested in that at the time, which is weird because I've made a huge departure from that world of I'm not a huge fan of any of those companies for a bunch of like health concerns. But at the time, I thought it was really cool. My views changed considerably. I feel like that intersection of consumer, especially wellness related consumer brands and venture has been the intersection you've been orbiting around for a while, though. There seems to be a continuity there. Yeah, definitely. I've always been obsessed about how people interact with physical product, aka like the e-commerce world. And as I got deeper and deeper into that space, it started with alternative proteins. And then it expanded into the world of D2C and CPG when it was very much like boom time. I don't know, I just found it fascinating. Like, don't know why you buy the lipstick that you do or why I buy the chain that I'm wearing or the italic hoodie that I'm wearing. I don't know if it's human psychology or aesthetic taste. I think it's so cool. Like why you buy what you buy. And over time, I'm still deep in that world. But I realized that every brand that sells online uses like a hundred different tools, software products and lending products. That's when I kind of got into like actual software. Before that, I kind of orbited around like health and wellness, B2C and CPG, and then realized that there's all these backend rails or contextualing or payment stacks that they use to sell online. And that's what actually got me into like the software startup world. Before that, I was kind of like hovering around it. It's interesting. There are some parallels here between our paths because I fell in love with the direct consumer world in undergrad while I was at Brown. And I interned at Red Antler when they were opening up an office in San Francisco. And I went to all the meetings and, you know, helped project manage a lot of the client work. And I even wrote my senior thesis at Brown because I was in development studies about Warby Parker. I was like social entrepreneurship and I ended up dissecting their whole brand strategy. And I think I'm drawn to it for similar reasons because at the heart of a great brand, especially today in such a saturated, you know, consumer landscape, it's great storytelling and it's being able to win hearts and minds and do that often through content and a lot of other things. But yeah, I, I resonate with that. So after Babel, what did you do and how did you eventually end up to where you are today? Well, I worked for Babel for like a year. And then I said, you know what? I want to go start my own brand. Like every 22 year old that doesn't know what they're doing. And I said, it can't be that hard. I'm going to try to do it. And I'm going to start a newsletter interviewing all these founders about health and wellness. And then I'm going to start a men's health product. And I was like, content and commerce, done and done. It was a terrible fucking idea because I had no idea what I was doing. But I told the GP at my phone, Bob Manuzi, I said, I'm hyped about this. I want to go do it. And she said, okay, I'll give you the first seat funding. And she was like, we agreed on, I think, like a $75,000 investment. And she said, but it's contingent on you go to raise the rest. And so being the like naive 22-year-old that I was, I tried to meet every angel investor and network with every venture fund that I had connections with because I was in VC at the time. And all of them nicely were like, hey, that sounds great, but going to be a pass for us. And this is not a story of like the, yeah, I got 100 passes and one yes. It was like, it was just nicely being like, okay, sounds great. Like, you don't know what you're doing. And I didn't know what I was doing. But I, I said, screw it. I'm going to go try to do this. For like three months, I tried to do it. But the good thing that came out of it was I didn't raise money. So I never brought on that capital. 
but it did force me for the first time to go out on my own, even if it was only for a few months, because I, I left the firm. We're obviously still super close, but it was like, I'm going to try to do this thing. Funding didn't work out. The company didn't work out, but I did launch the content and that was the proof newsletter, which is kind of how I built my initial network, initial reputation in the health and wellness space and in the, the investment space. And the idea behind, I mean, it's not any new information. It's just like the idea behind interviewing people in a kind of new format, I guess, instead of a long form podcast or in, I don't think TikTok was around then. It was kind of TikTok content, but in written format. It was something you could consume in two minutes, but with a really cool founder or investor, mostly via email and online. And built that website and that newsletter up like pretty significantly over the next few years. Through that, A, I got really good at interviewing people and I got really good at content and writing it up. And then using that social proof, kind of build a network for yourself and drive whatever output you want to drive. But I also a lot of cool people. Interviewed like Tim Draper and Mark Cuban and like pretty well-known folks, a lot of who I still talk to today. And all those relationships, I ended up parlaying into actually kind of getting into investing. And that was at Assemble Brands. So it was just a few months later. Within like a few months, I'd launched this newsletter and there was some buzz around it. And they said, whoever this young kid is, maybe that he can help us source deals on the like, you know, health and wellness side of things. So that's when I met the Assemble Brands team. Adam Pritzker is the founder there. He started General Assembly and sold it. And that was kind of the first like real investment experience. Before that, I'd say I was kind of playing investor. I didn't know what I was doing. Then I at least semi understood like the early stage investment world and ended up working assembled brands for a couple of years between LA and them. I have questions about assembled, but first for the proof, were you hopping on calls with people? Were you seeing them in person or were you just sending them the questionnaire via email? Mostly calls. A few people like Mark Cuban were like, I only do email. I couldn't get a call with him, unfortunately. I think the, the learnings behind just pushing yourself, just like ask people for stuff. Yeah. In a really low friction way, in a way that helps them, in a way that and framing that ask, I think is a really useful skill. And I think because I had left my venture fund and was, I'm going to do this, I kind of had to figure it out. And so I would just send like a hundred emails, like every few days. And, you know, the first time you send them, maybe five people responded. I was like, not a great rate or response rate. And then I tweaked the language and then 10 people respond out of the next hundred. And then I tweak it again. And all of a sudden I have like a pretty good response rate because I was very clear about like, hey, here's the value for you. Here's who I am. Here's what we're going to talk about. And usually I was asking founders and investors to talk about their health. And everyone's human. Everyone, like if, if I asked them, if I asked you like your morning routine, you could riff on that for a few hours because you do it every day, right? And so I think also having an angle of like, hey, we're going to talk to these cool people about this idea that they never talk about. It's simple and really powerful. What were some of the lessons about content and creating content that you learned from writing The Proof? Good question. Social proof. Social proof. It's really all it is. You can be a no-name 22-year-old that has zero reputation and has no idea what they're doing, and people will still think that you have value because of the people that you're interviewing, which is crazy. I'd interview, put out an interview with Mark Cuban, and people would reach out to me saying, how do you know him? That's so cool. And then invite me to like investment opportunities or invite me to dinners. And I was like, I don't know this man, but I interviewed him. And I framed it correctly. The value of, I don't know if transmuting brand equity is the right word, but showing up consistently with a really high profile person next to you um, or on your show or on your series, I mean, you know this probably better than anyone, is an extremely powerful thing. And the cool part about it is that 
if you're actually genuinely excited about talking to people and interviewing cool people, then it's legit. It's fun for you too. And so I think for a lot of creators, it checks both boxes of like, it checks your creating ambition, which mine still is. Like I love content creation. Finally getting back into it a bit more because it's kind of what got me into the space. But it also checks the box of, you know, I was an investor at the time. And over time with the proof newsletter, it was mainly to get into deal. And a lot of people that I interviewed said, you know what, we're actually raising around right now. You want to be involved? And I said, sure. Those were all my early angel events. And then when you leave investing, you can still use it to say, hey, you know, I want to sign customers for this new software product. Those are your customers, right? Or I'm starting a new brand. I want to seed it to people in the ecosystem. Those are your early influence. And so I think it checks both boxes, which is really cool. But to your point or to your question, like the lesson in social proof and brand equity exchanged between people, fascinating. Yeah, it's so true. And I find myself even now constantly underestimating it because I'm not because I I just kind of I can be strategic but I also tend to just make stuff that feels good to make and that I enjoy and that I feel like is missing so you know whether it's TikTok or whatever and then it ends up unlocking all these opportunities and connections and sometimes I you know when I get like organic press or like when the information wants to write about me I'm like why I don't get it and then I'm like well I guess I guess there's something about what I'm doing and what it's led to that is kind of interesting. But but it, it's so funny because I can be so heads down and just like forget the brand equity that is accruing around the content, which is pretty cool. So can you tell us about the model of assembled brands? Because you guys were providing what, working capital? Mm-hmm. Primarily credit products. That's the side of the e-commerce ecosystem that no one likes to talk about. But is the only reason that brands exist is because you know, brands can leverage their inventory or POs, purchase orders, or accounts receivable, and, you know, family offices or equity funds, or sorry, credit funds, or, you know, lending products can lend against those assets. Increasingly, like merchant cash advances was like the new version of this, uh, mm-hmm. lending against, you know, recurring revenue, and then providing working capital to invest in, whether it's advertising or new inventory or new product lines, whatever it is. And increasingly, most brands, especially right now, are not a fit for traditional equity. This isn't new information. It's just kind of what's happening in the world, as you know. And so credit all of a sudden became a sexy product and became like a cool place to work. And I loved working there. I worked there for a couple of years. I hang out with brand founders all day. I got to learn about the e-commerce infrastructure ecosystem. I was also running the proof. I started to angel invest. I started to build my own network. But end of the day, I think a couple of years in, I love the team that I work with. They're, they're still a great job. But you wake up one day and you're like, okay, I'm... and credit is even closer to finance than equity. They're both financial products that founders can buy. But if you're angel investing or you're an early stage venture, you can kind of fool yourself that you're not in finance. But when you're doing credit products, it's like you wake up and you're like, okay, you're looking at P&Ls and spreadsheets and cash flow, and you're like, okay, this is finance. And so yeah. that was kind of the tipping point. It was, it was, I still love the space. I still love the team. I still love that world. But I just didn't really want to hang out with investors all day. I don't want to talk about investing all day. I want to talk about building things because most of the time that I was spending time with founders or people like you or content creators, I had so much. And then sometimes you're in a room with 10 investors talking about a waterfall analysis or what percent you can advance against an inventory asset. And you're like, look, I'm glad you guys find this cool, but it's not. Yeah. Having that realization sooner than later is, 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 is useful. Mm-hmm. 
Do you feel more like your DNA is that of a, a founder, a creator, or an investor? Probably a creator. My favorite thing to do is bring people together, talk about cool ideas, or just hang out. It doesn't need to be like that serious. Make connections between that group and then do it again and again and again. And the things that you talked about or the connections that you made offline, go deep on it, record that content, whether it's written, video, social, whatever it is, ship it, meet new people through that, bring those new people together. Like that cycle and that momentum is awesome. It's really fun. And that's really what I've tried to lean in. The founder part of things is fun as well. You know, building verbatim, I've learned about building a team, about leading a team, about cash flow, about sales, about marketing, about building a really good product that people like. That part is deeply rewarding and deeply fulfilling, but it doesn't check the creator box for me. And I think a lot of creators kind of that I've talked to are kind of like 60, 70% creator but also like have that founder DNA too, that it's deeply fulfilling to like build something that people actually like and that people will pay for. It's hard to recreate that feeling. Content mm -hmm. is that. And so mm -hmm. it's probably like a 70, 30 or 80, 20 mix, but mostly on the creation side of things, which yeah. I haven't done for a couple of years. I'm excited to get back into. Do you feel a need to create content that has nothing to do with your professional objectives or do you feel just as fulfilled creating content that happens to be strategically helpful i don't have a good answer to that i'm working on it like okay so the context here is i run verbatim or content studio for things and when i create content written video whatever it is when i create content outlining and pointing out pain points that a B2B startup deals with when it comes to content and outlining key action items about how they can address it or outlining the social proof and results that we've got similar clients, we're going to sign more deals and our revenue is going to grow and we can expand and we can do better work and we can invest in our team. And you can't deny that. I mean, that, that, that's the product and service that we sell because it works, right? Harnessing your social proof and your expertise and your relatability on a specific niche and then sharing that is going to drive more business your way. And so that's literally what I do for a business. That's what I do for my work. And so when I do it for myself, I think for the longest time, I was scared of putting it out there. But now that Verbatim is, you know, we launched officially a year ago, I was freelancing for a year before that. It's hit a point now that it's not just my work persona. Like I really find it cool. Sorry for the language. It's cool. Like I, there, there is a point where I was like, I got to separate my work self. And then my interests in lifestyle and health and wellness, and travel and relationships. And my newsletter now, which I'm finally getting back into, has a mix of everything. It's everyone, everyone has a lot of interests. Everyone has like multiple, I forget the word, like dualities, different interests, different things that gets them excited. So I, I still think you should have an out, outlet to create on that front, which I'm going to start doing again. But I think I literally over the past few weeks started really leaning into like, I talk about this all day and maybe a couple of years ago, like I knew it was useful, but I wasn't hyped about it. Now I'm like fully in the rabbit hole of B2B content. And I know that sounds so weird, but I don't know. It's fascinating. And I'm like fully in it. And now I'm actually excited to talk about it. Cause I said, you know what? I talk about it all day, 24 seven anyway. And I think I actually really am excited. So why not share it? So that's the recent change. I mean, I 
think B2B content is sexy and that's why I create a lot of it on TikTok. So, and that's kind of what I consider it. And it it didn't start that way. I was just like, I want to create good content for, you know, female professionals. But then I love D2C and I love like the world of venture in Silicon Valley. And then it ended up being pretty B2B oriented. So what inspired the idea for verbatim? Do you remember when you first had the idea and you decided to act on it? Hindsight is different, right? Hindsight, you can look back, have a clear point of reference. You're like, this was the moment. Honestly, it was just that I was tired of investing full time. I didn't want to be in venture anymore, or at least in the credit ecosystem. I wanted to try something new. I wanted to bet on myself truly for the first time, not just start a newsletter, even though it was useful. It wasn't a real company. And all my friends were saying, you got to do your own thing. And I said, okay, I'm going to go work for a startup. And the best way to do that is that I got a bunch of friends that run startups. You know, if you're in the tech scene and investment scene, you just end up becoming friends with people that, and you meet a few that you're like, I want to work some way. And so, yeah, about two, two and a half years ago, I said, you know what? I'm going to leave venture and work with a couple of my smartest friends. So I started working with a handful of startups. I think three at the time. One was like, I was freelancing mostly with, and then the other two were smaller. And I did that for a few months. I remember it was January, I think 2021, which is a little over two years ago. And I swear to God, within like New Year's past, a week went by, it was like January 10th. And the main one that I was at that was floating most of my income got aqua hired brutally and everyone got laid off. And then the other two collapsed and just didn't work out. And I had no severance, no money, nothing. I remember I was in LA living with a friend. And this happened like on a Friday and Saturday back to back. And I was like, you know, I gotta go for a walk because I'm not doing too well. I was 24. I I had no savings, no money, no reserves. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. My grand plan to go work in the startup world just completely fell on its face. Right? Like that's definitely not going to work. And so that is the moment where I was like, okay, I don't want to go work for someone else. That was probably like my ego stepping in a bit of just screw this. I don't want to be dependent on other people because I was dependent on other people and everything just flopped and I got nothing. And so I want to be in a position where I'm actually betting on myself, where I can control my future. If it fails, fine. It's in my control. If it does great, also great in my control. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I said, you know, I'm decent at sales and partnerships, marketing, and I'm decent at content. So it was like this content marketing interest, the sales partnerships interest. And Again, I kind of did the same path of freelancing, but instead of freelancing with a plan to work for one of them, I said, I want to turn this into some specific like productized service or just like niche service offering. And that's when Verbatim actually started or the freelancing behind Verbatim. It was working with a couple companies at first, paying nothing. I think my first retainer was like a thousand bucks a month for a crazy amount of work. And all I knew is that it was adjacent to content. And I said, Hey, I'll come in. I'll kind of be a SWAT team. I'll help bunch of different stuff just let me know what you need that early when you're freelancing you just need to build up like a client roster and the good news is i had friends maybe not friends who paid me a lot of money but i had a lot of friends in the space and it's slowly with each repetition like client number one two to three to four you get a little closer to what pain points they're actually dealing with and then by client number seven or eight i worked my way up to like four or five k a month so income had stabilized a bit and i could take a step back and be like all right i have five paying cuts and they all have the same pain point of they need to ramp up a content engine 
like a true condo because they're just raised like 5 million bucks and they know they need to do it to unlock new organic revenue streams, but they have no idea how to do it. Like no clue because they're like, they got a bunch of other stuff going on, probably an engineer or product focused founder or design focused founder and content is not their job, but they're stuck between this weird place where they know they need to do it. Their investors are telling them they need to do it. They see other companies doing it incredibly well, but they can't hire a kid out of college to go interview their biggest customers for case studies. Because what if they fuck it up? Like you can't mess up that relationship. But at the same time, they weren't ready to drop 150 on a seasoned head of content who wasn't even going to do the execute. I'm a big fan. There, there's some incredible head of contents out there. But the downside is that because they're so experienced and can charge great rates for it, they're not going to actually do the execution. They're not going to write it for you. And so there's this weird middle ground where like there weren't really good agency or studios in the space. You couldn't hire a kid out of college or a freelancer to do these serious interviews. But if you hired the seasoned person, A, you have to hire a recruiter fee, like 150 base plus equity plus bonus, and they're not even going to do the execution. And so that, that paper got me really excited. I was like, there's something because every B2B company that just raised the seed round or series A or season, series B even needs to build a series B2B content fund to compete and to drive new revenue, but they don't. And that, I'd say like five to 10 clients in, that's when I was like, oh shit, there's something. And there's really no agency going after it. And so that's when I incorporated verbatim just a little over a year ago. That makes so much sense to me. And by the way, it's a great name. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really good name. I have so many questions about this. So who are your ideal clients? Who, what, what stage do they tend to be? What, what verticals? Tell us more about who you work with. Any B2B company with a high contract value. The reason for that is if you, you know, we, we had a customer that we recently started with and their average contract size is like $100,000, which is absolutely crazy. And so all we need to do is drive one lead in the door that closes and we just made them a lot of money, right? Not every company is like that, but they're a good example, right? So any B2B company, with high contract size. Usually it's B2B companies that just raised seed round, series A, maybe even series B. The use cases are a bit different. So seed or series A, it's usually launching and then running the content function. So you own the strategy, you own the launch, and then you own the distribution. Where series A, series B plus, maybe they've already done the strategy, they have the calendar, they know their ICPs, they don't need you to do that, but they do need you to own the execution and the distribution. A lot of the time, I think this comes with like most agencies or studios, the strategy work itself is not rocket science. Most founders are really fucking smart people. And if they dedicated a weekend or two weeks to content, they'd probably figure it out. But they just don't have the time or the bandwidth, A, to execute it, and B, to mess up. They can't, like, it, you know, this is the typical agency model. It's like, hey, you could do this for a few months, mess up on your own, waste some money, hire the wrong people. And then get to it, or you could just skip those steps because we do this all day. And so that's our core value prop. Like, we'll just get you there faster and we can spin up a content function in less than you know, a month and actually do it right from the first time. Because we're also running 20 other content. We've launched 75 to market and we've worked with like 100 plus clients to date. And that's all in the past like year or two. So that's amazing. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. So when you say high contract value, does that preclude b2b startups that are targeting smbs no i mean high contract size can be as high as can be as low as 500 dollars a month right 
I mean, 500 bucks a month. I won't do public math right now, but I think it's 6K a year or something like that. And if you're building a good service proper, if you're building a good software product, 500 bucks a month, 6K a year. And if your retention's good, they stick with you for a handful of years. That's still upwards of 10, 15K. That's still a lot of money, right? So we, we consider that a high contract value. 100K is like on the extreme. But there's also some agencies like Red Antler that you 250, $300,000 contract. So we've worked with some agencies too. And that's increasingly a space that we're getting into. Because if we work with you for six months and you know you have a 100K contract, 200K contract, all we need to do is drive one lead over the six months and we just made you. Now the math gets exciting when what if we close 10 clients for you or 20 clients for you? Then the ROI gets a little crazy. But what we don't do which is literally just from experience. We don't work with companies with an AOV of like 20 bucks. So in the past, when I was freelancing, figuring it out, we worked with some email focused companies, some newsletters, some venture studios, some VC funds, some D2C brands. And some of them don't like, can't quantify leads in the first place, like a media company, like, okay, this lead is $2, right? For an email address or for a D2C brand selling seltzer. It's like their AOV is 25 bucks. Big fan of the company, but we're just not a good fit for them. Our retainers start at 10K a month, give or take, right? Sometimes we've got up 20, 25K a month. So that's really one of the reasons why we work with big contract size. So if I'm charging you 10K a month on a recurring retainer, we can write the best content in the world. But if your AOV is 25 bucks, it's still going to be really hard to drive an ROI. And so end of the day, my biggest job is to drive results, not just results, but drive a return on investment for the clients that we work. The best way for us to do that is work with B2B companies to figure contracts out. So a lot of the time with regards to our ICP, it's simple math of like, can we drive serious return for you? If yes, great, let's work together. If no, probably go work with someone else. Mm -hmm. And do you tend to focus more on startups in like the e-commerce infrastructure, commerce enablement space, or is that just a function of your existing network and you're open to any B2B startup? Any B2B startup with bigger contract sizes. The e-commerce focus was just a was just a result of my network, honestly. That's just like I had invested in a bunch of e-com SaaS companies. I was friends with a bunch of the founders. And so when I went out into the world of trying to freelance, they were my first calls. I said, Hey, what's going on? What are you doing on the content front? They said, Actually, I have no idea. Are you down to help? But those are how those conversations. And they said, How do you price? And I said, I have no idea, but let's just like work together and see. Yes. And so it was a result of that starting commerce infrastructure and retail enablement and then branching out. Now we do B2B SaaS, we do FinTech, we do Web3, we work with agencies, future of work. Got it. And then typically for startups that have raised maybe a seed round or maybe they just raised close to series A, how are they normally acquiring customers? And then where do you guys fit in and how does that create some sort of a funnel or system? Yeah. Seed Series A specifically, customers are typically coming from a few places. One is direct investor intros, two is customer intros, and then three, we'll call this like your go-to-market network. This could be friends, small check angels, operators, partners, tech partners, agencies, people that you're friends with. And so basically you have investors who are incentivized to customers because they look good when they tell their friends. And then this like go-to-market network. And across all three of those, the biggest filter for us working with someone is if that network already exists, that word of mouth network and content is great fuel to accelerate that. 
I was talking to a founder a couple hours ago who wanted to work with us. He said, I'm ready to get going with content. I'm good to go. And I said, okay, our customers referring you. He said, no, to design part. I said, okay, great. Our investors sending you deals or at least like non-paying design partners he said, no, we only have a few angels in the round so far. I said, okay, great. Do you have a go-to-market network? Do you have partners? He said, no, I'm new to the industry. It's like, okay. So there's no word of mouth going on right now. We're not going to be able to do anything. And any agency or freelancer that says, I'm going to blow up your pipeline with content, that's bullshit, frankly. Because without social proof content, you can build value-based content all the time. And you can talk about thought leadership, trends in the industry. And that's all well and good. But to convert a customer, you need social. Like if I'm, even Domo, we talked about this podcast, say that I was paying $5,000 for the slot to go in front of your audience. If I was actually paying for this. I'd say, okay, what results have you gotten from people in the past? What other guests have you had? What logos do you have? What reviews do you have? Do you have testimonials? Can you send it with case studies? Do you have customer success stories? Every decision that people make, even when you're buying a brand on Instagram, you look for the reviews in Right. You look for, have they been in the press? Does someone say this is legit? Do they have four stars? Do they have five stars? Right. On Amazon. Everyone looks for social proof in the buying decision. The same thing is true for B2B relationships and B2B purchases. People are just people. You just happen to be selling into it. Right. Usually at a higher contract size than buying a bottle of water on Amazon. So typically what we do is again, focus on identifying, isolating that social proof. And then if customers already have that, then content is a great fit, right? But if you don't have that, then we probably can't work. Does that imply that the bulk of your focus as an agency is on creating case studies and any kind of content that sort of like bolsters the case to work with that startup for a client to actually you know, close the deal with that startup versus brand awareness, top of funnel, first touch point of discovering that startup? Yeah, when it comes to B2B, brand awareness is a real thing. And it's very difficult to quantify. And so if you're a B2B startup, basically your top funnel metrics, probably impressions and engagements. Your mid funnel is probably site traffic and conversions onto forms. And then bottom funnel is like new leads attributed to organic social or email or whatever distribution channels you have. And then obviously that correlates with closed deals and revenue. Across those, brand awareness does not touch any of those. And so our job is to isolate nodes of social proof it could be an investor or an advisor. It could be, we just welcomed a new expert to our panel. It could be, we just were on a talk show or a PR outlet. And the classic is, we just had a customer join us. These were their results. And so our job is to identify sources of social proof, document it, and amplify it across three main channels. So content creation, everything we just talked about, that's like one part of the puzzle, like 20%. 80% is distribution. And distribution for B2B is one of three things. It's either on-site, socials or email on site, meaning most people have even early companies, right? Maybe you have 10 customers, that's all. And they love you. Those 10 customers should each have a case study, should have a customer success story, should have reviews, should have testimonials, should have pull quotes, should have ratings, should have brag bars all across your site, all across your social files, all across everything that you built. And so that's the first. Second is specifically on socials. So B2B LinkedIn is probably the best one. Twitter a bit as well too. And then the final category is email. Email is most exciting to me right now because in the D2C world, almost every D2C company right now has like 100 email flows or campaigns going out at once, right? 
Every consumer knows this, right? Basically, every consumer gets a hundred different emails, right? You get flow for Memorial Day or this new discount of Friday. But in the B2B world, that doesn't exist. I've talked to serious B2B founders that Series C, thousands of customers, and we get on a call, I say, do you have an email flow bi-weekly or monthly updating your go-to-market network? You know, there's like 30 people that vouch for you that already send you deals. And they go, no. I go, why not? I go, I don't know. I just didn't think about it. That's a huge unlock right there. Your sales team, your BD team, what's their nurturing sequence or campaign? They probably have some. Are they embedding social proof in it? Usually not. How are you investing or updating your investor? Investor updates, people actually do well. Hey, we just shipped these case studies. We're trying to talk to these. So email is probably the most exciting, at least right now for me, because almost every B2B customer out there isn't utilizing it. What are the main flows and automations that the majority of B2B companies can implement? Systematize your case study production. Most companies, if you're in business, you probably have at least 10 customers, hopefully more. 10 happy customers who love you and are happy to talk about it. So on the creation side, write 10 customer case studies, write 10 customer success stories that are slightly different. We can talk about that. More playbooks and frameworks. That gives you 20 content assets. Put that on a weekly drip to everyone that you want. Anytime someone submits a new lead, outside of you or your sales team reaching out to schedule a call, they should be hit with that every week. Existing customers do. Because most customers aren't fully utilizing a product or service paying. And so that should go out every week. The second low-hanging fruit that we start with is every founder, again, if they're successful early days before content. Again, we talked about customer referral channel, go-to-market referral channel, and investor referral channel. The go-to-market one is significantly underutilized. Even for verbatim early days, I have, yeah, we probably have 10, 15 people that are in our corner, former customers, friends of mine, partners, partners of ours, for that go-to-market network that there's no system behind it. It's one-off texts. It's emails, it's casual catch-up calls. But with an email flow, it doesn't need to be serious. It can just be every two weeks or once a month. Hey, we just finished a new case study. Here are the results. If you know anyone in this vertical, let us know. We're happy to chat. It's a very different ask than pressuring people in your network to like send you new deals. And so when we kick off with a company, we literally start with, okay, people are already referring you to business. And they'll say yes. And then from there, I say, okay, can you just segment this into a list? drop these emails in a list. They say, okay. And then we use the case studies that we produce and put those on a drip. That's going to unlock your business 100%. 100%. It works every single time. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Do you guys ever do anything to help the founder build up their personal brands? Because this is more true, obviously, in consumer-facing brands. But I also find that in Silicon Valley, because you know people are just active on social and know, kind of putting themselves out there, some founders become de facto like the ambassadors of the brand and they create the thought leadership. Do you guys help with that? Or do you even do any sort of like ghostwriting around that? How do you think about the the founder and how you can utilize them as a content source or channel? Socials is that second channel, right? So when you're thinking about content, it should go on site through socials and email. Also, if you have a sales or BD team and you're that big, sales BD is another channel, right? When it comes to socials, A, to your point or to your question, yes, I think founders, every founder should get up on the soapbox and be talking to customers, spreading the gospel, you know, showing that social proof to their audiences, ideally building their followings through a mix of A, product and feature announcements, or just creating kind of content events and a halo around the ecosystem. Two is showing relatability and authenticity, and three is showing expertise 
or authority around the pain points that their customers feel. And it should all be framed from the lens of, I do this all day. I'm hyped about it. And I want to share this hopefully useful information with people. That's really all it is. And then actually interacting with your audience or community, whatever you want to call it, and being that kind of key. That's really important early stages over time. It gets less But we've worked with some founders that even just being a month slightly more active on LinkedIn, um, even if it doesn't lead to customer introductions, maybe it leads to one partner inbound that says, hey, I saw your stuff, you should catch up. And that leads to a partnership six months later. And that's a one-to-many referral relationship with kickback. And they just got 20 new leads six months later. So sometimes it's just the people they can meet. That's how I think about socials. Yes, it should drive direct leads through better engagements, impressions, ideally DMs or direct leads to your website. So it usually happens. But sometimes it's just meeting people that can really change it. But no, we don't go straight. What we will we what we will do is build social copies specifically for our editorial assets and then turn those into posts. Here and there we'll do some like relatability or authority focused content. But end of the day, we're not trying to be a ghostwriting shop for founders. There's a lot of other agencies and ghostwriters and freelance writers that can do that pretty well. We think we can do it pretty well too, but again, we'd like to focus on what we're great at, which is documenting, amplifying, and distributing social proof focused content. Yes, socials is one of those, and we'll show them how to do it, and sometimes we'll ghostwrite, but it's not our core. Mm-hmm. So are you guys, when you say posts, are those on the website's blog? For socials? For, well, I guess framed differently, do you guys help build the content for these companies' blogs? Are blogs still a thing? Okay, so when we think about distribution channels, on-site, socials, email, yes, we need to get it on-site. We need to get it on their website. It's either under case studies tab or resources tab, usually. And then there's also the copy and the social proof content in the form of either direct copywriting or reviews or testimonials or logos on their site. So... We'll help on that side as well. We'll do audits. We'll rewrite their copy. We'll rewrite the flow of their website. But yeah, it needs to get up on their website. It needs to live somewhere, right? The original asset. So that's where the case studies and some editorial should live. I think the days of like seven ways to improve your top of funnel using ghostwriting are dead because no one reads those things. What people do read is proof based. Um, Got it. People will always read that. If you send me... If you said, hey, you know, I'm also offering a service where I ghostwrite for 10K. And I said, okay, cool. Send me a case study. You can't send me a text based of like, here are the results. Like, I want to see it somewhere. So there's some legitimacy. There's some credibility. Social proof content still has that. I think gated assets, white papers, case studies, customer success stories. But in my opinion, the poorly written, sorry, the poorly written kind of mid-form case article on a blog that doesn't have that social proof element of, hey, we talked to this expert or this customer. Those are dead. I don't think, at least I don't read those. Got it. And the reason I ask is I was curious if you guys help with SEO at all, like Google search rankings. No, that's not part of your, yeah. No, I'm a big fan of SEO for the right companies. I think what's really important for folks to do is that when you're thinking about investing in content, just map your customer journey. How are people already coming in? And it's it's funny. I've had some awkward conversations with, you know, say founder XYZ just raised 10 million bucks. And they said, we know we need to invest in content. And we've been told there's PR, editorial, maybe social media and SEO. And we're going to do all of them. And we're going to get ahead of content to manage agencies across each of those, right? 
I say, look, editorial case studies, white papers, social proof stuff. We can run that. Great. But by the way, the SEO agency you're about to hire, you may not want to. And they go, why? I go, okay, let's map your buyer's journey. And I say, okay, like, what are your top funnel sources? And they'll say, okay, customers, investors, and our go-to-market network. And I say, okay, what's your contract? And they go, probably 15K a year. Say, okay, if that's the case, then are your ideal customers actually going to make an informed buying decision on Google? And they go, maybe. I go, really? Well, because your buyer's journey does not map with that. Right now, it looks like people are making those decisions by asking their network, by asking their founder friends who are customers, asking their investor friends who are investors, asking operators. So what indicates that Google search will be useful for you at all? And you won't know for six months anyway. It's a really good SEO shop, maybe like four months. And you won't know. Where case studies, you could probably drive ROI in the next 20 days if you do it fast. And so again, it's not an editorial versus SEO, where for some companies, like at least for B2B, if you have big contract sizes, usually people are making buying decisions on But if you're selling like lemon perfume, right? If you're selling lemon water, people are probably going to make those buying decisions on Google or at least on like social media apps. Again, that's why D2C marketing is so different than B2B marketing. But mm-hmm. a lot of the time, I think SEO is just like something that you got to do. And that is one thing, the same way that what I do or what Verbatim does isn't useful for Love and Perfect or for a brand because the ROI doesn't make sense. The same thing is true for B2B and SEO. A lot of the time, not always, there's some freemium products where SEO is great. A lot of the time, if you're running a high contract size B2B company, SEO is probably not the end. Mm -hmm. So let's say a startup is a little bit further along and you were outlining some of the main buckets of referrals and acquisition that can happen in the early stages, right? You have go-to-market, you have your customer referrals, you have investors in your network. Those tend to be the main buckets. As a startup becomes more established and maybe they have a more robust team, what tends to be the main mix of acquisition channels? Is it PR and and also in addition to some of those other things and that's kind of it? Or are there other top of funnel sort of brand awareness drivers that startups can be thinking about after which point they can start to work with, you know, verbatim? Yeah, the phase one and two, again, early stages, just build a product or service that people are willing to pay for. If people aren't referring it organically, then you have a problem. So early days, just build product that people will actually pay for. Growth will happen organically. Same with verbatim. We didn't even do content of our own for a while because we want to say, okay, can we build something that customers will actively refer? And that even though, you know, my old investor friend may like me as a person, that they wouldn't actually recommend to their portfolio. Like, let's get it to a point where people are recommending us. Then let's use social proof content to document and amplify it across existing channels. Once you get to that point, then you layer in sales, BD, growth function, paid. Then you lay in like legitimate startup teams that typically happen in a broader go-to-market. Again, zooming out, like go-to-market has many phases. And within a go-to-market motion, content is just one lever. Even within content, then you have PR, editorial, what we do, SEO, and social. So there's all these levers and sub-levers. And again, even for B2B companies with big contract size, sometimes what we do editorial, like social proof editorial, is not the answer, and that's okay. And it may work, but they're focused on a sales outbound motion right now. Totally fine. It's a different lever. I have no idea about But within the content bucket, usually based on what type of company you run, what stage you're at, you know, PR and editorial may be a better mix versus for other companies, SEO and social may be a better mix. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. 
So let's take it back to strategy because that's one of the things that you guys help with. And it's like you were saying, you know, if founders really had the bandwidth. They could sit down, carve out some time in a weekend, kind of develop something that could work and then iterate on that. But what are some of the best practices or tips that you have around developing the right content strategy for these B2B startups? Yeah. Content strategy really isn't rocket. Who's your customer persona? What are their problems? What are their objections to buying from you? And what outcomes does your solution get them to? That's kind of all you need. Like it really isn't. It's so funny because I have a bone to pick with like other content strategy firms. It's like, what strategy are you doing? It's like, who's their customer? What are their problems? And then you also map their buyer's journey from top to bottom of funnel and then combine them into a content calendar. And what I mean by that is across your buyer's journey, say top of funnel, customers are influenced by social proof from other customers. Bottom of funnel, maybe customers are influenced by social proof from experts specifically on their page. So you say, okay, in my network, I have these four customers that I want to do case studies and content with, and these four experts that are also on my cap day, right? And then with the content strategy component, you go, okay, these are the top three pain points or top four, and these are the top two outcomes, and these are the top two objections in the funnel. Right, so you basically have eight people and eight topics, and then you just mix and match them, right? You say, okay, this customer can really speak to objection number two, right? This expert can speak to outcome number three. That's all it is. Then you build a content calendar and you start executing. And then you start testing and shipping as quickly as possible. And again, some of those assumptions may have been wrong, but I know a lot of content strategy firms or experts or former advisors that spend like a month on content strategy and pillars and franchises. And it's like, what are you talking about? This should take 30 minutes, max. And then let's <laughs> tough. And it may not work. And then let's do it again. But at least you have some data back where people will spend four months on like a death content strategy. It's like, give me a break. That doesn't work. Spoken like a true startup person. So when it comes to repurposing content, do you guys have, what are your processes around that? Because I imagine there are types of content you can have that are foundational and then it can manifest in different ways across, you know, social and email and on the website. So what is the process that you have iterated to for repurposing like a core piece of content? Yeah. Core repurposing is two months later, ship the exact same content with a different title. That's like number one. I forget what was in my email box this morning. I forget what I saw on LinkedIn an hour ago. I definitely don't remember what it was two months ago or even a month. Two months we kind of do to be safe. So when you think about, okay, email distribution channel, two months later, if you go on bi-weekly, right, it's like three or four times. And in that, you can kind of just change the subject line and have the same results and have the same use case. Ideally, you have more customers coming in the door, but you want to repurpose these. So you tweak the title differently to focus on a slightly different pain point, and then you ship it again. Maybe it was slightly different. Right? So you change the base of it. Same social proof content, end of the day. Most people have forgotten what they got two minutes ago, less two months ago. And then there's repurposing. This is more social specifically, which you probably have more experience with than I do, frankly, of, okay, we just shipped this long form thread on expertise or authority about these specific outcomes that our product works on. Okay, then let's actually tweak it, right? Let's completely change the hook. Let's change the format. Let's change the copywriting and let's ship it again, right? So that's like actual repurposing of social content. But when it comes to repurposing editorial and social proof editorial, then you need to think across channels and then how it's going out over email versus how it's going out. 
Do you think there's a role for TikTok in any of this? Yeah, 100%. I honestly don't know the platform well enough to have an opinion yet. If you ever want to talk about that, I'm here. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so let's close out with a question about basically common mistakes you see teams making around B2B content other than, you know, not doing it soon enough or not doing it. Yeah, the most common mistakes, most common mistakes that we see day to day is perfecting and micromanaging content. In my opinion, a founder's role should be getting the right boards on, getting the right pieces on a board in play, giving them clear scopes and systems and APIs that they should be hitting, building in systems of feedback, maybe so a team member is checking in or demanding reporting every week so they know they're on the right track. But once you've built the systems and process and gotten the right people, you know, for us, that's us. When you, if you want to do editorial, it's us, a team member who is managing us and then making sure the systems and reporting are in play. After that point, as a founder, depending on your team size, you should probably only be checking in like every two weeks or every month or something like that. And trust that the people that you're working with are doing the right. What doesn't work, and we've had this happen many times, which we've gotten better at because we filtered it out. But, you know, we work with a big name founder and we're excited to work with them. And we can't ship any co content because it hasn't been approved because they're doing line by line edits on a four page case study that we're shipping twice. And so nothing gets shipped, right? And it's no fault of their own. They just have other stuff to do so they get busy, but you need to put the right people, in, right? And so sometimes we found that like the founders managing us solo, they got a lot of other stuff to do. I run a company. I have a lot of stuff. Don't let you got a lot of stuff. To do. Like you shouldn't be line by line editing stuff. And so delegating before this stuff happens, founders should be involved in the strategy component. But after that, most of it should be handed off to a team member to manage. This was amazing, Adrian. Where can people find Verbatim and where can people find you? Verbatimlabs.com or email Adrian at verbatimlabs.com or LinkedIn for Twitter. This is super helpful, very tactical, and you're awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it.